And we can understand that last line as a, as a prayer. Chase the dark night of sin away. Shed over the world thy holy light. Let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read how God does that this morning. Matthew chapter 4. You can find our preaching text uh, on page 809 of your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25, page 809 in your pew Bible. Uh, In our sermon series this year, uh, we're going through Matthew's gospel. We've seen some of the highlights of the ministry of Jesus so far. Particularly, we have seen these, these two sort of seminal events as he is introduced to the world and begins his ministry. Those events are his baptism and his temptation. He is baptized as a representative of the people of God, and he is tempted as a representative of the people of God. And he comes out spotless, sinless, as our God, our King, and our champion. And now he is going to begin his official sort of formal ministry. He's going to begin uh, three years of teaching and preaching and healing. And Matthew is going to sort of launch us along our way as we get to the meat of his gospel account in the life and ministry of Jesus. This morning we have a couple different uh, accounts, a couple different sort of smaller stories or pericopes, and we're going to kind of put them together in one big theme as we see Jesus begin his work. So follow along with me in your copy of God's word, Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, paralytics. And he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Lord, we have come this morning to hear your words of life. 
We have come that your light might shine upon us in the preaching of your word. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with my thoughts and my words, and you would open all of our ears and hearts to hear your gospel, to believe it, and to walk in light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as winter continues to go on in these mountains, there is a common malady that many of us face, many of us are affected by. You might know it as the winter blues, right? When the nights are long and the days are short and you just can't seem to get the energy together, right? You might have thought it was just you. It turns out there's a scientific term for this. It is called the seasonal affective disorder. This is a real thing, and it's, the acronym is SAD, SAD. I'm not making this up. You can go look it up. It's a real thing. The, uh, it is a, an experience of cold and not enough light. And here are some of the symptoms. And I want you to think if this applies to you this winter. Symptoms include sleeping too much, having little to no energy, and overeating. <laughs> that last one is definitely true for me. <laughs> Overeating. The solution to SAD, to seasonal affective disorder, is simple. Scientists tell us. Here it is. Go outside. (laughs) Go outside in the morning and get some sunlight. Go outside in the late afternoon and get some sunlight. And just as simple as getting out in the sun will have a healing effect on you. Right? And we know this is true. Right? The sun, it boosts our immunity. Right? It strengthens us. Uh, It gives us energy. It gives us vitamins. But we don't need a scientific name to know this, right? I mean, there's a reason that thousands of years ago, the authors of Scripture used light as an image for the healing power of God. They didn't have internet to look up the sad disorder on, right? Uh, They didn't have all the scientists to compare and contrast, but they knew the power of the sun. And what better image in Old and New Testament to show us the power of God than light? God himself describes himself as light. So we're going to see in our text this morning how Jesus brings the light of God into a dark world. More particularly than just Jesus brings the light of God, I want you to see that Jesus is the light of God. And he brings people out of darkness. Jesus is the light of God who brings his people out of darkness. That's what I want us to see together in these few minutes. The movement is from darkness to light. So we're going to take those as our two points. We're going to start in the the shadow of death. And then we're going to move to the dawning of life. Shadow of death to the dawning of life. Look with me at verses 12 to 16. Here in these verses, we see the shadow of death. Uh, Matthew is telling us about how Jesus moves around. Matthew loves to tell us where Jesus is physically, how he moves to different places. It's like Ezra. We don't know these people or these places, but they they meant a whole lot to Jesus and those who were living there. Now, the first verse, 12, tells us that Jesus has heard that John the Baptist has been arrested. He has offended the king because he criticized uh, the king's uh, illicit marriage. And so the king has had John 
arrested. Matthew just sort of breezes over that, but he shows us this in some ways is a trigger. It's a, it's a launching pad for Jesus to move. So he moves from Nazareth up to Capernaum. Now the text tells us he withdrew into Galilee. So Galilee is a region. If you, you know, it's wonderful. We have these maps in the back of our Bible, right? There's a, the Sea of Galilee. Around the sea is the region of Galilee, right? You can picture, you know, this map of uh, the ancient Near East. You've got the big sort of oblong dead sea in the south. You've got a little river, the Jordan River running. And then you've got the Sea of Galilee up at the top. And Capernaum is right up there at the top of the Sea of Galilee. It's, another way to say it, really far away from Jerusalem. <laughs> and it is surprising. Matthew has worked for three to four chapters telling us that Jesus has come as king of the Jews. And where is he going? Away from the Jewish people. He is going north. He's going into Galilee, the place where there aren't many Jewish people, where there are, quite honestly, the enemies of the Jews, of the Jewish people. Why is Jesus sort of retreating almost when he is supposed to be the advancing, conquering king? Well, the answer is he's going to Galilee because he is going to reach the whole world. Jesus has come not merely as the Messiah of the Jewish people. He has come sent by God in heaven with a plan to reach the nations, with a plan to reach the entire world. He is going to his people because his people are scattered everywhere. And he's going to call his people wherever they are that they might come to bow down and worship him as king. But there's something more even going on for him going north instead of south. Uh, Matthew tells us he's Zebulun and Naphtali. What is that territory? What does that mean? What do these names mean? Well, these are two Old Testament tribes. And remember when Joshua came into the land, the land's divided up amongst these 12 tribes, and these two are located in the north. And so the, the region that Jesus is ministering in is in their area in the north. So it's kind of like a county in which he's going into. But there's something more important because verse 14 says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, I hope by now, one month into a sermon series on Matthew, you see that word fulfilled and your ears perk up. Right, this is like the sixth time, I think. He has brought something from the Old Testament into the life and ministry of Jesus. This time it is Isaiah chapter 9 that is being fulfilled. Let me invite you to turn there, if you would like, in your Bibles. You can keep a finger in Matthew 4. We'll be back in a second. But Isaiah chapter 9, it's not just that John, I'm sorry, that Matthew quotes verses that sort of are fulfilled in Jesus. He quotes entire ideas, entire themes that are fulfilled by Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, page 573 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah is a prophet prophesying about a foreign nation that's going to come into Israel, this time Assyria, and invade them and defeat them and bring them out into exile. Look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. Some of you don't like Isaiah. It's kind of a dark book, right? There's a lot of dark stuff that happens. Here's one of them. But the darkness is met in Isaiah by these pinpricks of light. 
And when we turn Isaiah chapter 9, we come to that famous prophecy that for us a child is born and a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know that is fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. And so Isaiah is looking to the invasion and the exile, but then he's looking beyond that. He's looking to when the Messiah will come, when this child will come, who will lead God's people out of exile and back home. He looks ahead to a latter time. And why are these two tribes important? Because they're in the north. That's where the Assyrians came from. That's the path by which the Assyrians drug God's people out of the land. And so for Jesus to go there, it's like going to the burnt over district, right? It's, it's going to the worst place, the darkest place of the land. And he goes there because Isaiah is telling us that it's in the region of darkness that a great light will be seen. What does Matthew want us to know about Jesus? He wants us to know that Jesus has come to lead his people back out of exile. That Jesus has come to go into places, not the beautiful places. Jesus has come to go into the very shadow of death. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. It's not just living up north that's the shadow of death. It's coming into this world at all. That, that God himself, who has existed from all eternity unto all eternity, would take onto himself fallen human nature. He would take to himself the sentence of guilt and death. That he would come and be tempted by the devil. That he would come and... One of our favorite psalms is Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we usually think that applies to us. And I think it does. But it also applies to Jesus. Into the shadow of death. And he can pray... And sing to his God, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. The God in heaven sustains him as he goes into the darkest places. That God has sent his light into the darkest of places. This is a message of hope, not just for those in Jerusalem, not just for those in Israel. This is a message and hope of salvation for all people. Are you in darkness this morning? Are you in the dark? Can you not see God? Do you have no awareness, no no, no thought that he is there? Do you think wherever I am, it's too dark and it's too far and the shadow of death is too deep? There's no way his light can come here. Jesus is telling us that there is No place too dark where his light cannot shine and where his light does not shine. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. This message is do not despair though you are living in the shadow of death. Do not despair even if you think that that shadow will overcome you this very week. Physical death. Spiritual death hopelessness, and despair. Into that darkness, God has sent his son to shine the light of hope and of glory to bring hope to all people in the darkness of death. Jesus walks in the shadow of death and there he shines his light to bring us out.
He goes into that darkness. What does he do when he gets there? That's what I want you to see, secondly, in our text this morning. The dawning of life, verses 17 to 25. Into the shadow of death dawns the life of Christ. His light brings life to those in death. And it happens in a, in a way we're not expecting. What does Jesus do to begin his ministry, to shine his light? He gives commands. You note that the, the, the two words that begin the sentences of Jesus and the rest of our passage are repent and follow me. All his words so far have either been to John the Baptist or to the devil. Now, finally, he's talking to us. And he commands us to repent and to follow him. Look at these commands. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. That, that's a key little, little word group from that time on. This is John's transition, um, John, Matthew's transition. I think it's the end of the introduction. I think verse 16 of chapter 4 is the end of the introduction. Here's a, a section break. And now verse 17 is telling us what is Jesus about to do? What characterizes the ministry of Jesus? Well, he's a preacher, right? Up to this point has been preparation. From this point forward, it's proclamation. He is going forward and he is preaching not one sermon. He's going around all around Galilee and he is preaching this message that's summarized, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll recognize that phrase. That's the exact phrase that John the Baptist was preaching when we found him a couple weeks ago out in the wilderness, sort of preaching out to the, to the desert. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was preparing the way for Jesus. It's sort of like he's standing in the twilight, right? You know, the early morning, you can't see the sun yet, uh, but everything's starting to get brighter. And it's John saying, it, repent, morning is here. Well, then Jesus shows up and he has the very same message because the sun has risen. And he can say with just as much assurance and confidence, the morning is here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or as one author has said, the kingdom of heaven has drawn so near, it has actually dawned. No more twilight, now sunlight. But what does Jesus tell us about this kingdom? He tells us that it is, the kingdom is a matter of the heart. It's not about buildings. It's not about territory. It's not about political parties. It's not about political platforms. It's not about building schools or hospitals or adoption agencies or orphanages. All wonderful things. The kingdom of heaven is a matter of the heart. How do we know that? Because we know his first command is to repent. The word means to to change or more particularly it means to turn around. To have a change of mind, to have a change of heart. From turning in the direction you are going. And, and in the Old Testament, it's used to re- turn rebellious people back to God. When God's people take up arms against him. When they ignore him, when they disobey his law, when they curse him. When they run away from him. God's message to a rebellious people is turn back. And what's amazing about the gospel of grace is that God himself turns us back. (laughs) 
that he repents us. That he turns us around and Jesus calling rebels to repent. And you know this, it's not just a change of our mind. It's not just a change of our heart. It's changing what we're actually doing. It's changing what we're saying. It's changing the direction in which we are walking. It is a change of our actions. We can see in this life a repentant heart based upon the fruit that is born in Acts of righteousness. You may not have been expecting to come to church this morning and hear the king of the world call you to repent. But that's what he's doing. He calls all people to repent and to turn. To stop hiding in the darkness. That's easy. That's safe, right? I don't want to... I don't want my sin brought to light, especially not the light of God. Sounds like an invitation. It's really a command to confess your sin, to be forgiven by this gracious and righteous king. One preacher says we enter the kingdom on our knees. We enter the kingdom with repentant hearts, Before our king. Here's what is incredible. Y'all. He calls us to repent. And he stands ready to forgive us. He doesn't say repent and do some good works. He doesn't say repent. And I'll come back to you in 12 months. To make sure you're good enough for me. No. the, The criteria for his kingdom. Is not our righteousness. It is our repentance. And holding on to his righteousness. Hear the call of the morning. This morning. Turn from your sin, confess in your heart, rest on the righteousness of this king. For he calls all to repent, for his kingdom is at hand. And that's only the first command as the light begins to shine. The second command of the light is in verses 18 to 22. That command is follow. Follow me, he says. You know this story, Jesus calls his disciples Uh, There's four of them. It's sort of this parallel structure. He calls two brothers. They stop what they're doing. They immediately follow him. And then the next verse, he calls two brothers. They stop what they're doing. And they immediately follow him. It's showing us the the power of the call of Jesus. I mean, look at this with fresh eyes. Jesus walks up to some guys who are in the middle of their job. Like, literally, it says they are casting a net into the sea. I mean, the... They've got the net in their hand, right? Their hips are turned. They're about to to throw it out for their fish. And in the middle of that action comes Jesus walking by the shore. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what's incredible is that they follow him. And I don't think this is a testimony to the faith of these guys. I mean, if I was watching, I'd be like, those guys are crazy. (laughs) This is a testimony to the power of the call of Jesus. That Jesus can affect what he actually calls us to do. That Jesus' call is so powerful, it is so effectual, that it grabs hold of rebellious hearts, of unbelieving hearts. And he turns us, by the power of his spirit, immediately to follow after him. I mean, look how powerful this is. Look Look at the second set of brothers, James and John. It's mentioned twice, this other guy named Zebedee, that's their dad. 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. You see how Matthew just kind of repeats this? Zebedee is fishing with his two boys. A lot of dads want to go fishing with their two sons. Sounds like a great day, right? Out on the beautiful Sea of Galilee, you got your boys with you. It's more than just a fishing trip, it's their job. I hear his dad raising up his sons to take up the family business, to follow after him. He's teaching them. They're doing the hard work, right? He's just kind of showing them how it's done. And then up walks this guy, not a fisherman. And he says, come and follow me. And immediately, look at that, verse 22, they left the boat. You can get another boat. And their father. They left their father. Now I want you to see that this is a unique call in scripture. God is not calling every single one of us to become apostles. That only really happens once in the history of the world. These 12 apostles. This is really a call to ministry. A call to change their career. To change their jobs. Maybe some of you have had that call. Maybe you are praying over that call right now. That God is calling you out of your job into full-time ministry. He doesn't call all of us to that. Actually, I think he calls most of us to work a, a good and honorable job and love and glorify and serve him there. But this is how God works, isn't it? That God calls us wherever we are, whatever we're doing, to follow him above everything else, to love him above everything else. It does not matter if he has called you to a different career or not. If you are his son, if you are his daughter, he has called you to follow him above everything else and to love him above everything else. And that is not easy. He's not calling you to do anything he hasn't done. He's not calling you to follow him somewhere that he's not willing to go. This is the call of the cross. This is the call of a life of sorrow. This is the call of the sojourner. This is the call of those who live as strangers and aliens in this world, cherishing the heaven to come. It is not an optional call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, these brothers will learn slowly, but they will learn that Jesus is worthy of this. That Jesus is worthy of leaving their nets and leaving their boats and leaving their parents. That Jesus is worthy of all of it. We still need to learn that, I think. I wonder this morning, are you holding back? Are you holding back from God? Are you unwilling to follow him immediately? And leave all, as the text says. You follow him a little bit. You follow him where it's easy. You follow when he calls you where you want to go. But are you willing to follow him wherever he calls? Are you willing to die to yourself? To follow Christ your king? Or are you holding on to something? Or are you holding on to someone? Let me ask another way. What do you need to leave behind to follow Jesus this morning. May God reveal that to our hearts today. The power 
of his call. But I want you to see the power of the call is accompanied by the, the promise of the call. Because look what, he, look what he says after he commands them to follow. He says, I will make you fishers of men. It's a, it's a call and a promise. It's not an invitation and a suggestion. No, it is he calls and he says, I will make you. All these guys know as how to fish for fish. Now he says, I will make you fishers of men. You will join me in my mission to reach the nations with the gospel of grace. We've said this so many times, we sort of forget the irony of it, becoming fishers of men. You know, when you fish for fish, they're alive, and your goal is to, to kill them, right? I mean, you, you want to catch them and, and eat them. The, the goal of being fishers of men is exactly the opposite. It is to catch, as it were, people who are dead, that they might be brought to life. It is, it's, not, it's, a, it's a rescue mission. And here are these men. There is nothing special about these disciples. I read someone that said, Jesus is so, so wise, he can see who the best people are, even when we don't recognize them. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think these are the best people. These are just some ordinary guys, some ordinary fishermen, responding to the, the, the effectual call of Jesus as he grants them faith to follow after him. But it tells us that Jesus transforms ordinary followers into kingdom workers. He doesn't need to send somebody to seminary, right? He doesn't need to, to train them in some extra special Bible study or effective evangelism technique or, or, or special tools of mercy ministry or serving. He calls ordinary, regular, I think, poor and uneducated people to follow him and he transforms them into kingdom worshipers. Kingdom workers. Look at the commands of Jesus as his light shines in the darkness. Repent and follow. Or, as he says in many other places, repent and believe. This isn't advice. It's not advice. These are, these are commands. I mean, you see the power of these words, even in the English translations. Repent. Follow me. Repent. Believe. He is commanding all who hear him to turn from sin, to turn from rebellion and worship and serve, believe and follow the king. And look what happens as the light spreads. Just two minutes on these final few verses. The light spreads in verses 23 and 25. And this is, this is crazy. All these people are coming to him from all over the place. He names all of these regions. The, the, the people are being healed by the power of God. Crowds are following him. You see verse 23, an overview of his ministry. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. This is not one instance. This is what he's going to do for the next couple of years. He's going to travel around. He's going to go to synagogues and teach. He's going to preach the gospel to repent and believe. He's going to heal Anyone and everyone brought to him. It's a pattern of word and deed, right? Of proclamation and action. And the, the miracles affirm the message, right? The message he is preaching is confirmed by the power of the miracles. And I, I'm not going to go into these various diseases, but you see that there's those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and here's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's Jews, it's Gentiles, it's people from Galilee, it's people from the Decapolis, that's the other side of the river, it's people from Jerusalem and Judea, it's people from beyond the Jordan, that's sort of way outside of Israel. It's people who are healed of all diseases. And this is in Galilee. He's not building walls. He's not putting policy into place. He is bringing broken and repentant sinners into his everlasting kingdom by the grace of his gospel and the shining forth of his light. This is the words of John when he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of God. He has come. The light has dawned. It shines into the darkest of places. Hear his call. Repent. Step out of the darkness and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, you command us to do things this morning that we cannot do. You command us to repent of our sin, and we can't do that. We don't know it enough. We, we treasure it too much. We disagree with what your Bible actually calls sin in our lives. You command us to follow you. We can't do that. We have tried so many times and fallen flat on our face. We have instantly taken another path. We have turned around and gone the other way. Holy Spirit, Would you come to an unrepentant and unfollowing people this morning and would you turn our hearts? Would you return our hearts to you? Would you give us the gift of repentance, the gift of faith, the gift of following you? We are powerless on our own. And Lord, I I pray as we close that as we experience what Peter and Andrew and James and John experienced, Lord, as we leave behind the treasures of this world, as we leave behind maybe jobs that would have been better financially for us because we couldn't do it and still follow after you. Lord, as we leave behind places, as we leave behind people, Lord, show us that you are good and that you do good. Show us that you are worthy. Show us the grace and the mercy of our King that we, like the healed sinner would leap and rejoice and celebrate in your kingdom that is at hand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.